This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Pima Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and C. Pam Jong is, of course, the author of How Much of These Hills is Gold, which 535 National Book Foundation, one of Barack Obama's favorite books of 2020, bestseller everywhere, also a really important reimagining of the American West, which is, of course, why I love this book and this author so much. And Pam is back with a book that's slightly different and slightly not, all of which we're going to talk about, called Land of Milk and Honey. And I'm so happy to see you. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you, Rio. I'm so happy to be here. So Land of Milk and Honey, we're on a mountaintop in Europe. There's been an environmental catastrophe, which is feeling a little too real after the summer of wildfires across North America. So you start writing this when? I mean, is this a pandemic? Did you start writing this during pandemic? Yeah, unfortunately, it was a pandemic novel. I started writing it in the beginning of 2021. And now that you've described it so beautifully, I'm realizing that there was a little bit of an escapist element to it, too. Right. It was a time when we couldn't travel. It was a time when uh, I was just thinking about all the experiences that we were no longer allowed to have. And so that that came be that sort of became the seed of this book that is about a world that is maybe half a step away from ours in, in which people are suffering this food shortage due to a flaw that um, comes down over the sky. And it really illuminates these questions of privilege and pleasure and uh, what kind of joy we can look forward to in the human experience as things continue to get worse. I have to say, I really love our narrator, our nameless chef, who you describe her as 29, a hungry ghost adrift. And I was just like, Mm. okay, I'm in. I'm completely in. She's left California. She's left Los Angeles, in fact. And she's kind of lied to get this job a little bit. She wasn't quite expecting to get this job. And suddenly she's cooking with ingredients that are not only expensive, they're rare, they're extraordinarily special. She's just working at a level that I'm not sure our hungry ghost who's adrift was ever thinking she would be working at. So when did you sort of find her? Wow, that's such a great question. I think that she came out of this first individual and then sort of collective hunger that I was realizing in myself and my communities. You know, if you think back to the pandemic, it was a time when there were so many big issues in the world to deal with, important ones. And it made sort of human desires feel frivolous and small, right? It was like, we yeah. should be out there helping with spreading the word about COVID vaccines. We should be out there trying to contribute to GoFundMe for, pe- for people who are really, really struggling. And a lot of us were pushing aside our extremely natural impulses to have a little joy in our lives, to have a little bit of delight. I do think it was a time when many of us became ghosts of ourselves. We were sort of projecting forward the person that we thought we needed to be to survive this crisis and putting aside like the wholeness of who we were. Food and sex and grief. (laughs) I sort of knew exactly whose world I was in (laughs) as we're here. 
And yeah, it is a very different book, obviously, from your debut, How Much of These Hills is Gold. But there's a mythology running through the new novel, right? There's this mythology, the land of, I mean, let's start with the title, Land of Milk mm-hmm. and Honey, right? Let's <laughs> think about all of the metaphors for food and the American dream and the bounty and, you know, I grew up hearing stories of like how deep the cod ran in the harbor where, I, you know, where my Ooh. parents' house was and you could walk out with a bucket and suddenly you'd have all the, you know. And then, of course, we overfished everything. Same with lobster, same with any kind of seafood in that neck of the woods, right? And that's sort of been part of our mythology, right? And one of the things I turn to you for when I'm reading your work is this idea that the mythology is really, well, a lot of it's made up. And a lot of it is just, I don't want to say ridiculous, but it's missing big beats, right? And a lot of the beats are people of color in our experience or, you know, people whose experiences outside of what a majority might consider average, right? But this book, right, I'm not sure everyone's going to see the connection with the mythology, right? I love that you bring that up, and I love mm-hmm. that you use the word mythology specifically when right. you. It's interesting because I believe "land of milk and honey" is a phrase that it has biblical origins, right? It does. And oh, so yes, it there's does. a yeah. In my first novel and in this book, I sort of came to have this broader interpretation of the word mythology, which comes to include things like national myths, like economic myths, um, some of which during the pandemic were outed as you know fantasies. And see, sort of like biblical myths, because uh, America is also a nation sort of built on these puritanical ideals. And the narrator starts out in London because she's sort of been exiled from entering America due to this catastrophic climate disaster. And so it's interesting the way in which she is able to engage perhaps more acutely with these American mythologies of plenty and generosity from afar from the place of somebody who is not allowed back in. And so I do think that you're right in that some of those things carry over from my first novel, even though the settings feel very different. There are people who are grappling with their faith, a national identity and a national mythology, and in sort of stepping beyond that sort of this like global mythology, I think, of humanity as a species that is ascendant and improving. Yeah, one of the things I love too when I'm reading your work is the way you use language, right? And in this book too, like we're not seeing brand names. We're not seeing necessarily national markers, right? Like we have a vague idea of where we are and we're definitely in the mountains, but I don't ever feel like I'm adrift when I'm reading something you've written. I know sort of where I am in space and time. And yet you write really tight now. I mean, this is what, 230 something. I mean, this is tight. And I just want to talk about the development of your style because it's definitely can like, I can see it from the stories even, which I don't know if those are going to be collected at any point, but I'm kind of hoping they are. They will be if I ever have 10, I like enough at the same time. (laughs) Okay. All right. Fair enough. But I want to talk about language and how you're playing with it and how you use it to manipulate time, but also keep your reader grounded because those are two really separate things that you do at the same time really well. 
Yeah. Um, thank you for noting that. Yeah, I, I realized I have a sort of allergy to proper nouns, even when I'm writing um, realism, which I think Land of Milk and Honey is like on the border of. It's sort of, again, the real world that could happen tomorrow or in two years. And I think that that is a lesson I have learned from myths and from fairy tales, in fact. This way that you can create a feeling of timelessness and I think what we often call in books universality can be partly achieved through moving quickly through scenes through not lingering too much in details that their reader's mind can sort of fill in for themselves. And I think a lot of that also comes from my writing process, which is like 99% editing, Miwa. Yeah. Um, I sometimes hesitate to even say this because I think it gives like can give an odd impression, but the drafts, first drafts, or rather what I call the the draft zeros of each of my two novels, they were written in four, five, six weeks. Just okay. something set down on paper so it's there. And what happens is I, for each novel, have gone through at least 15, 20 rounds of complete manuscript edits. And so often what I'm doing during the editing process is looking for concision. I'm trying to sharpen everything i'm trying to reduce things to their most essential form um i think that it's a lesson i take from reading poetry um certainly from reading myths and fairy tales and from reading some of our our great stylists who have this urgency in their prose that feels like they are only telling you what is most essential who do you put on that list well, I will say that for this particular book, a key novel was The Lover by Marguerite Duras. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she just, there's, it's, that is an even slimmer book. I don't even yeah. know if it reaches 100 pages, right? I, it's somewhere around, it, it is, it is half the size easily yeah. of your book. Yeah. Without and she kind of like bowls you over with, with language and with emotion and you sort of, trust that you're going to get the information you need and that everything else is just chaff in the wind. When I was writing Land of Milk and Honey, The Lover was actually a book I returned to less and less for its themes and its concerns and more and more for the rhythm of its prose. So oftentimes at the for that first draft, I would start a writing day by listening to a recording of a certain passage of The Lover. Yeah. Okay. You know, our chef is restless, right? There's a little bit of Ba, the spirit Yay. of Ba from these hills, I felt Yay. like. And there's this restlessness, right? This, this, I don't know how to get settled. I know what I'm looking for. Maybe a little less so with our chef because she too is caught up in a little bit of grief no. and she's trying to figure out where she sits. But there is this sort of, energy to her movement to her place in this world that you've created on this yeah mountain. that's that's true i hadn't thought of it like that but there's certainly this shared like itchiness yeah um, and i think that itchiness comes from feeling that the national mythology the american dream whatever right. you want to call it doesn't like fit right there's something off about that you write about isolation in the extreme here but isolation isn't Anything that's, shall we say, unfamiliar to anyone who's read your work before, right? Like, how do we belong? Where do we belong? How do we fit? 
do we want to play by the rules that are established? And our chef is working with a slightly weird set of circumstances and sort of mysterious benefactor who's a little bit of a pain. Definitely knows what he wants, but a little bit of a pain. And she doesn't know how much she wants to go along with what's happening. I mean, there's a moment in the book that really sort of hit me. Um, She's lost her sense of taste and she's lost her appetite, which I would imagine for a chef is like, you know, a writer who can't write or read or a bookseller who can't read, right? Like that's a piece of you that's missing. And I was just like, ooh. Yeah. How much of this novel, though, is you structuring the action, right? Or how much of it is just her being who she is? I mean, I realize if you're saying 99% of what happens structurally happens in the edit. But not actually. The main beats of the novel are all there in the first draft. I think in that first draft, often what doesn't make sense is the language. What doesn't make sense is the logic. There's grammatical errors aplenty. But the sort of emotional arc of the character, that Hopefully that feeling of urgency is what I'm putting down the page. So I do think that every character I write has to create its own life. But I did know pretty early on that this was going to be an emotional arc moving from sort of a, you know, a vacuous feeling about one's own personality and place mm-hmm. in the world, that hungry ghost feeling, and moving yeah. towards, I suppose, like embodiment, which is sits alongside, but it's not the same as what we sometimes call empowerment. That arc did come to me in part because of my own experiences in the pandemic of feeling so disconnected and then realizing that so much of what I needed to be grounded in the world was to be a physical person with other people, to be in in community and have these experiences. You give our chef a very strange community, which I'm going to dance around a little bit because I do want readers to be sort of knocked off balance a little it is it's an off-kilter experience it is you know who are these people and what do they want but i would imagine for you there is especially when you're trying to figure out sort of what pleasure and joy mean in the context of a terrible situation right that there had to have been a little bit of fun and play for you as you're creating this world i mean and a lot yeah, so a lot much is happening fun. here. <laughs> I mean, we talked, you know, we I kind of joked earlier about this novel sounding a little bit escapist when you describe it, but yeah. it was. I mean, part of this was like I couldn't go out and eat meals. And so what could I do? I could remember the great ones I had eaten and I could invent invent these like lavish ones for the chef. And so so much of the pleasure of this book is in the food writing. Um and the fact that, you know, there's food and sex in the novel. And I think there's a common erotic charge that runs through them and as i worked on it i came to develop a little bit of a theory for uh, the unifying roles of great food writing and great sex writing and that is okay now now i'm like afraid to and i'm like i don't want people to put this on my grave so maybe i'll change my my mind in, <laughs> in five years um but i do think the secret is restraint yeah, I, think I would agree it's with that. Leaving space for ambiguity. The goal, you know, writing a good food scene or a good sex scene is not to perfectly describe every detail of that particular encounter. 
but to provide enough that the reader starts thinking back to their best meals, their great sensual experiences, and they fill in the gaps. And that's what provides all the sort of emotional complexity. The emotional complexity, but it also keeps you grounded in the story. And I think that there are some moments where I laughed out loud because of what you were putting everyone through. There were also some moments where I was like, well, I'm glad that's just not me. And yeah, I'm talking about a fictional world as if I could just walk down the hallway and somehow, you know, hop on a plane and enter this world when in fact, all I have to do is open the book. But it's a little wild to me as the reader, how connected I felt to the characters I felt and how much I wanted to know where we were going. Because you like pretty sentences, but you also like plot. Oh, I love very nice balance to have. I feel like it's great because plot is coming back in vogue. There are a couple of years when I don't feel like it was cool to talk about plot as a literary author. I think people are going to be very sort of pleasantly surprised. But again, too, we need to keep your chef off kilter, right? Like she can't, if she figures it out quickly, then we don't have as much fun as readers. I mean, part of to what I'm wondering in terms of influences, right? You've talked about Jira and The Lover. But I mean, you come out of Steinbeck and Little House on the Prairie and all of these like uber American kind of reading experiences, right? We're in Europe eating Michelin level cuisine kind of thing, right? In a world that hopefully will not really come to pass, but could easily, right? But how do you reconcile where you came from with where you're going as a writer, as an artist? I mean, I think another deeply American genre is the the narrative of the bumpkin American going to Europe and sort of rediscovering this entire world of senses and pleasures. So one of the other formative writers in creating this book was MFK Fisher. Yeah. She was, I think, the one of the greatest American food writers. Um, she wrote these like and now that I'm saying, she wrote these like beautiful transportive stories about moving to France, becoming a critic, but also leave so much space for ambiguity. Her prose right. is like lush, but also um, very, very tight. And I, yeah, that's another, it was a, it's sort of an American narrative that I was interested in puncturing a little bit too, because yeah. like one of the themes or one of the questions in this book is, why do we put this kind of European, French-inflected, Michelin-starred fine dining on a pedestal? Does it deserve to be there, right? Um, and it's something that the narrator, who has a Chinese and Korean-American background, grapples with. Yeah, this Eurocentrist kind of view of the world, right? And if you look at the evolution of food culture in America, and yeah, Fisher, I was hoping you were going to say that Fisher was an infl- like how to cook a wolf, actually still kind of holds so up. Great. And then, you know, there's also Elizabeth David, who's a Brit, but MFK Fisher's great nephew, Luke Barr, <laughs> wrote a book about her and Whoa. Julia Child and James Beard, and it's called Provence 1970. And he basically argues this is when American restaurant culture, sort of as we know it, American food as we know it, with that French inflection, was invented one summer in Julia Child's house in Provence. And it's kind of a trip to read because 
food is such a signifier, right? For so many people, like it's kind of the ultimate, are you in the know? Can you get a table somewhere? Da, 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 da. Like, I spent a lot of time in Los Angeles and you can find a really great restaurant in a strip mall. And, you know, the part of me that grew up on the East Coast is like, what? What? Strip mall? Great food. And no, I've had some seriously amazing meals in like, you know, locations that are perfectly normal for LA. But the idea that food is such a, a thing that can be, I don't know, subject to trends and whims and like the things that are sort of out of style and are very hard to find now versus 10 years ago and whatnot. So you as a food writer though, okay, let's step away from the fiction for a second. Would you ever consider just writing about food? Oh, I don't know. I think it's one of those dangerous things where you don't want to make your hobbies your job because then, like, what happens? Will you start to hate it? Um, Which I've already seen the danger signals of that in fiction writing itself. So I think I would rather eat my meals and be present in them rather than be writing about them in my head. But um, I have some friends who are wonderful food writers and critics and i just respect them and their viewpoints so much but not not a job i want to do i often say like i want to get good at one thing first and for right now that's writing fiction okay but i do love to eat and opine just not by committing words to a cage uh, listen that's totally fair i am um, you know there are just nights where i just want to eat cheese and crackers over the sink and sometimes that's that's the right thing. Like there's different <laughs> food. Yeah, going back to that question of like culinary hierarchy, I don't right. think there should be a hierarchy. I think right. there are different foods for different moods and it's all contextual. And I love like a bag of sour cream and cheddar ruffles just as much as I love like a Michelin star dining experience. Yeah, sometimes I do want just that bag of potato chips. Yeah, it's funny because, like, I was thinking about this, like, in the world of the novel, where because of mm-hmm. the food shortage, they have these, like, kind of, like, replacements for fresh um, ingredients. The chef at the heart of the novel is sort of chafing against that. But for me, I'm like, I probably would love that. I, like, love a chip made with 25 unnatural items <laughs> that I can't pronounce. Like, I, I love that. I love snap culture. Japanese convenience stores. I could feed um, myself off of, you know, any of the. I mean, certainly 7-Elevens are kind of legendary there, but then there's Lawson's. Lawson's? Yeah. Yeah, oh Lawson's too. I mean, I'm I'm perfectly happy to eat my way through a convenience yeah. store. If the Japan. apocalypse strikes and you're close enough to one of those houses where you should run in and take shelter. I mean... I do not feel the same way really about snack food in the States, but it'll yeah. do. I mean, I can, I can. remember there was that moment with the sing- the potato chips from Singapore that had the duck egg day. yolks. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Oh, I, 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 I spent a lot of time early in the okay, day. Yeah, we, we should not talk about snacks because we could do a whole <laughs> podcast on We on actually could. Sex. We actually could, but it is. I mean, food is sort of one of those ultimate high-low signifiers, right? The way writing is seen as a high-low kind of thing. Like either you are elevated to a level that mm, makes it maybe not as much fun to read. Um, Obviously, I'm not going to mention names, but we all have feelings about what 
you want to read and what you don't. Or there's this sort of level where everything is accessible and some people love that and some people don't. I think we're entering a place in the literary world and hopefully uh-huh. in the culinary world as well where people are allowed to talk about um, what they love in both high and low culture. I think like even the literary world, we're seeing like this increasing blurring of genre, right? Like I think Carmen Maria Machado is one of sort of the big ones that broke out into the mainstream with stories that are like not only queer, but sort of like inflected by horror and speculative fiction. And we've seen so many writers of that ilk. And like, even for me, I think I am probably following a little bit in their footsteps because this book is genre wise. And like, is it realism? Is it speculative fiction? Is it dystopian? Is it a romance? Like you call it whatever you want. The point is like, I wanted it to be pleasurable and enjoyable to read. And in a way to take seriously topics, I think are considered less serious in American letters. Like one one thing in this book was the topic of female pleasure. And I was interested in being really rigorous about that. I think that we live in a culture in which um, female pleasure is often dismissed as like frivolous or a spectacle for other people, right? Um, Or just hypersexualized in a way that kind of is divorced from individual people's experience of it. But pleasure is something to take very, very, very seriously if we if we are to survive. And female pleasure too can get dismissed as being trashy. Yes. How yep, that's and, the word. And, I didn't use it. And button. that's kind of and that's kind of fascinating to me. I'm like, oh trashy. Yeah. That's not a word that we use with men's appetites. I made mean, Philip Roth, right? Right. What is what is I mean, a great writer, but like so much of it is writing about about the penis and writing about male fantasy, but it's not trashy because it is, you know, an American man of American letters. And yeah. I think it's also really subversive, too, to play with this idea of genre, right? Like, for years and years and years, people would say, well, I only read this, I only read that. And why can't we? I mean, we're evolving as a culture, right? We're evolving as a society. Like, why can't we pull from different traditions, right? So Helen MacDonald and Sin Blaché have just written this novel called Prophet, which is wild. It is so good. But it's what, and again, like a little bit, what you're doing only with more spy thriller they're just like kind of saying well we wrote the book we wanted to read yeah i love that book i actually blurbed it and it was it's amazing to me because i i mm-hmm. love that like i loved helen mcdonald's h's mm-hmm. for hawk it's like speaking about like grief, grief writing right. and mythology there's yep. it's like one of the best and so when i had mm-hmm. the chance to be prophet early i was so curious about mm-hmm. where she was going to take something right? that feels you know, from the back cover summary, so different, but it still has so many of her qualities, like the precision of the writing, the almost like brutality of it, the forcefulness, the aliveness in language. It's all there. Like this is, I'm, I think in general, I just love writers who go and do things that are different and feel like they're, they're challenging themselves without betraying like the foundation of uh, what draws them to the page. I mean, I see the spine that connects these hills and land of milk and honey quite clearly. I do think you do a lot with the idea of a Western, but, you know, Taya Obrecht did a similar thing in Inland, right? I mean, she's got her sort of dreamy, well, fever dream kind of Western, right? 
And it's the, the idea that you can take these sort of, do we want to call it, I, do we call it a trope? I guess we call it a trope. I mean, it's a trope, right? but it's yeah, funny because right. it's like what gets called a trope okay. and what gets called like a classic. It's yeah, right. All so coded, it's a trope. Right? Yeah. If, but if, the idea if, that you can blow it up, right? Blow up the mythology kind of at the root, as it were. I mean, I would argue, and I'm going to argue, that dysto- writing a dystopian novel is its own kind of mythology, right? Because we've sort of created this, I don't know, they're guardrails for writing dystopians, right? Like certain things, you expect certain things to happen. Obviously, the details change from project to project. But it is a mythology, right? Yeah. And you're blowing it up here too. So what's next? Do you blow, What do you blow up next? Oh, I don't know. I was at the Coleman Center at the New York Public Library this past year. And I entered actually without, I feel like I'm not allowed to say this, without a project. Um, the one I had applied with, I had finished. And so I really had this beautiful experience of being in this gorgeous research facility with all these librarians helping me and just the ability to read almost like a child, just read whatever strikes your interest off the shelves, whatever, follow whatever story uh, really folds you. And so I ended up reading a lot about the life of Yves Saint Laurent. Oh. Interestingly enough, very curious person, a very, very odd and talented and divisive person. Some of the things he said uh, yeah. would really not fly today. I mean, it is. But now I think like the next project is going to be very different in shape and topic. It feels like structurally it's much more expansive than like my previous novels. I don't even know structurally where it's going to go yet. But yeah, very different. I think that most of all, I just, I don't want to stagnate as a writer. Um, I want to keep like jumping to new things. The minute you said Yves Saint Laurent, my first thought was, oh, femininity. Now she's really going for the jugular on femininity, which is, you know, something that pops throughout Land of Milk and Honey, too, in a couple of different ways. I mean, that's something, obviously, that runs through Hills as well. And I just, I love the idea of you sort of saying, okay, so all of these things you thought, they're kind of garbage. Let's reevaluate. But so if I can make a plea for maybe someday revisiting... Yeah, yeah. I'm just, yeah, I'm, I think I'm, I'm passing a post-it note, just saying <laughs> that idea could Thank be really you. fun. Yeah, that idea could be really fun. Do you miss this world, though? I mean, you spent a lot of time on this mountaintop with these people in this situation, and it is that kind of compressed, claustrophobic—I don't want to say anxious—but there, there's a level of tension that hopefully not a lot of folks see on a daily basis but yeah but it's pleasurable it is also like a beautiful you know happens over a little less than a year and the majority of it in the spring and the summer and the early fall there is this like gorgeous nostalgic summer romance that is sort of at the heart of it and I do think I miss that a little bit um and in fact I would say like part of the emotional force of the novel comes from the fact that it's technically told in a framed narrative, right? It's the narrator looking back on this Mm -hmm. year in her life on the mountain from many decades in the future. I was really interested in writing this kind of love story that, like the lover, continues to exert an almost gravitational pull 
on um, the people involved such that you can't help but think back on this on this time in your life without feeling all the feelings that poured over you when you were living in it. And there's like a way in which it becomes resistant to kind of judgment, right? I think we all have those romances in our life when, mm-hmm. yeah, like technically if we broke a die, like, oh, that was the bad, that was not the right person. There are all these right. problems, whatever. Right. But some part of you is still like, but it was wonderful. It was also wonderful. You also do it without nostalgia. And, you know, nostalgia is something that's really easily weaponized right. for right. a lot of people. You know, it's just going to say that's exactly what profit does. Yeah. Right. Which is an idea I love. I mean, yeah. I love the concept, but it is like in real life, nostalgia can be used as a cudgel. It really can. Yeah. And you somehow have been able to frame land of milk and honey in a way that doesn't make us nostalgic for any of it, but also doesn't turn us away. And that's, I mean, that's a high wire act. That is. And again, is that something that comes out of the editing and the language? Or are you thinking about that as mm. you're writing? Are you thinking about how do I keep someone in this world? Or are you just writing the thing you really want to read? I think the editing the first draft, I'm just writing the thing I really want to read. And so perhaps what you're latching onto is I think that as a writer, as a reader, as a person in the world, I'm just increasingly drawn to complexity, right? The Nostalgia, apart from its other issues, is often really vapid. It just mm-hmm. sort of ends the conversation. It's like, that was great. I wish we were back there. Well, there's there's no further conversation that happens then. And I think we increasingly live in a world in which we have to hold a lot of competing thoughts and values and sort of modes of living in our minds at the same time. And so I was interested in creating this like psychological portrait of a narrator who is doing that who was able to partially inhabit many different emotions and judgments, mm-hmm. or not judgments, many emotions and experiences and not perhaps judge any of them fully. Uh, and I think it's something that I'm drawn to a lot in mm-hmm. great works of fiction that I read in movies that I watch. Um, I, I want that complexity. I want that space where the reader is allowed to draw their own conclusions. Yeah, nuance is hard sometimes for people. I'm always kind of fascinated when I see comments from readers where they're saying, well, I didn't like the characters. I didn't like the ending. I didn't, they're very sort of very specific about Mm -hmm. what they're looking for in a reading experience. And that's, I want messy. I want gray areas. I want people whose behavior I can't predict. Um, And I do feel that way when I get in one of your books where I'm just like, okay, I'm, I'm just going to see where this goes. The sentences are beautiful. I don't have any preconceived notions really and i read land of milk and honey absolutely cold oh yeah i, mean, I was working the only off way of a bound, yeah i was <laughs> working off a bound manuscript i knew it was you and that's literally what i knew it's like okay let's see what happens well, and in you. a way i kind of prefer to read that blindly and not yep. have flap copy and not have lots of reviews from people who may or may not have skin in the game yeah, absolutely. And I think that maybe speaks to both of our desire to read across genre, right? Because like, what can flop copy, what can this summary ever do? It can only sort of like try to indicate genre, but like so much of what happens in a book 
so much of what we respond to is something that's sort of indefinable in a, in a plot summary. I left a galley for a different book on someone's desk recently, and I just wow. a post-it note on it that just said, very, very special. Oh, love that. I, and I a, bet you that, that person just picked up that galley right away. That's what they needed. Pretty much. But yeah, there are times where it's just, you know, here's the thing. Don't read, don't read the bits around the thing. Just pick up the thing and start with sentence one. And I mean, that's why I read, right? Like I read to have my world blown up. I read to have new ideas put in front of me. I don't necessarily read to have my own ideas reinforced. I just, I want to be surprised. I want serendipity. I want discovery. I want to, yeah, I just want to have my mind blown. Yeah, I, yeah absolutely. And, I love, I love surprise. I love surprise. Yeah. I love that moment. Well, I love surprise. I love that moment where you're like, what the hell just happened? And I also love that moment, speaking of reader reactions, mm -hmm. when you're like, I hate this character so much, actually, <laughs> right? Like to me, um, I'm actually very easy about it. I know there are a lot of writers who mm -hmm. are deeply like hurt when a reader misunderstands something right. about a character or a situation. I'm always just like, that's so fascinating. Tell right. me more. Why did you think <laughs> that? What happened there? Right. I think that like all I, I don't have a real message mm -hmm. in any of my books. My baseline desire is just to move someone yes. if they have an emotional reaction. And it can be strong, like revulsion even. Um, but if they have a strong re emotional reaction, like I accomplished what I set out to do. Mm -hmm. Did you surprise yourself, speaking of surprise, with Ooh. Land of Milk and Honey at all? Oh, yeah. All all the time. All okay. the time. So much of it was surprising. And um, yeah, again, knew the general emotional arc in the first draft, mm -hmm. but I can't write a book if I already know everything that's going to happen. Um, right. It sort of becomes lifeless to me the moment I try to apply everything out. Yeah, I'm sort of also rolling this idea around in my head. You know, the <laughs> what you wrote, the first draft of hills in thailand in six or seven weeks you write this book in the states in six or seven weeks the idea that you're translating that sort of intense experience right that that's your starting point i mean that's a lot of words in not a very long time and and again i understand the coming back and the rewriting and the chipping away and the and the polishing and all that happens. But the idea that that energy gets captured on the page kind of from jump feels really important. It feels like you can't separate the action and the character arcs and the language, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that's, that's certainly right. And it is interesting because the project I'm working on now, the writing is happening very differently. Like I can't seem to keep a habit <laughs> uh, I think that's an exciting thing for me. Okay. Uh, this one is happening so differently. The writing is coming in like little bits. And yeah, I, I do feel like it has a very different texture. It feels like a brand new challenge for me. It's like quite intimidating, but that's also what makes it exciting. I'm like, I literally don't know what this is. So I I will have to wait and see. Oh man, now I'm dying of curiosity. I'm really like, I'm so so curious because the process has changed for you right and i'm just what does this mean <laughs> i mean i really also believe that like no one gets better at writing what do you mean i don't think anyone gets better at writing i don't think i'm a better writer um 
I don't think that the lessons you learn in one book necessarily transfer because they have to feel surprising and novel. What I think I get better at, and this is something I've been trying to like hammer home into the minds of um, some students in a novel writing class I'm teaching right now, what you get better at is failing. Failing fast and hard and often and joyfully and acknowledging that no one ever, well, can maybe some craziest out there, but pretty much most people don't write a perfect novel from first sentence to last Mm -hmm, sentence. mm -hmm. You're going to throw so much away. It's kind of inevitable part of the novel writing process. And so what you have to do is train yourself to be like, I am going to throw this away, like hold things lightly and don't be beaten down by by what seem like failures or obstacles. Like those are just sort of like markers on the road. I love that idea of just getting faster at failing. I mean, you really do. And, you know, what you were saying earlier about just getting the draft out, right? Like I do think... And it's not just in the creation of art, whether it's a book or a film or what have you. I just, I think people get stuck in this idea of perfection, right? And perfection is just not a real thing. It's just not a real thing. And, you know, social media doesn't necessarily help because you're seeing sort of, you know, carefully chosen images and carefully chosen words or very what have you. And the idea that you have to actually live and just make mistakes in order to get the beautiful thing in the end, I just, I feel like a lot of people have lost sight of that. Like, yeah. It's just got to be messy. For yeah, it, it creates this like rigidity that I don't think is healthy for art, certainly, but also just not healthy for a living, right? Um, I think so, so much of what is charged about public discourse these days comes from the fact that we think that concepts, structures, governments, beliefs, are mm-hmm. immutable. Yeah. And that they Systems. should not change. Yeah, exactly. Right. I'm not, it's not even like I'm saying that that was, you know, that system or idea was bad when it was implemented 35 years ago. It might have been the best at the time, but it's not correct right now. And if we waste all our energy, like trying to cling so hard um, to something that's no longer serving us, we don't have that energy to spend in thinking of like what's next, what's around the bed. Ghost stories are really important to you. Because of what they, how they represent what's missing, right? And and certainly there is sort of a hauntingly, there's a haunting element, let's call it, to Land of Milk and Honey. And you've said that it sort of comes from you being uprooted and noticing that things are missing and, you know, your childhood was complicated. What, it was 18 places or 10 places? Yeah. Before you were 18. It was a lot of moving It was a lot. It was a lot. A lot, a lot, a lot of moving around. Do you feel more settled in your fiction now because of all of those sort of Mm. building of worlds, right? Like, I mean, maybe you weren't settled when you were younger, but like, could you be the writer you are now if that hadn't happened? No, definitely not. Um, I think that there's something really powerful to being a new person in a space that you don't understand. When you don't understand the rules of a culture, when you don't understand the rules of a new school or a new city, you arrive with this kind of freshness that allows you to ask questions that people who have been living with those rules for their entire lives are perhaps um, unable to see, right? And so I do think that's why as a culture, we are kind of realizing that a lot of great art comes from people from marginalized populations, right? It's because from that place of marginalization, they're able to like peer at the world and 
a really subversive and weird and fresh way. And then you put that together with this idea of ordinary people living epic lives, right? I'm paraphrasing you from a different interview that you did. The idea that you can use a novel to capture sort of this ordinary life, but recognize it for how extraordinary it can become. And I think it's hard to do in other media. I think I think the novel is sort of uniquely primed to show us that kind of arc and that kind of... Like we have space in a novel in a way that we don't, certainly not with a short story, but in other media as well. Yeah, we, have, you- we, we have that, yeah, we have the tool of interiority, which is such a huge thing because, you know, going back to like ordinary lives often superficially in terms of like plot or action not much may appear to be happening but with the novel you can go into all of the enormous and wonderful emotional upheaval that is occurring during that phase and also the novel lets you play the time in a way that is harder I think in a lot of other mediums yeah yeah I just speaking of like this being a little bit of a pandemic book I remember uh you know, coming a little bit out of the pandemic and being able to see friends for the first time. Every single encounter I had with a friend, I feel like I just had to lie down in bed with for three days because that's like every single person is a swirling universe of emotions and hopes and dreams. I had forgotten what it felt like to just crash into that. I think our chef has forgotten too. <laughs> yeah, I think, yes. I think she carries a lot of that. In your 200, I just checked the galley, it's 232 pages, and yet, and yeah, it's less than a year, but you cover so much ground, and it's just fun to read. It's really fun to read this book. It was so much fun to write, which is not something I could say about my first novel, however proud I am of it. It was not fun to write, but this one, it was It was really about transmitting the like pleasure and some of some of the pain um like sometimes you know that exquisite angst of being a human mm-hmm. body on earth onto the yeah. page okay but don't you have to have both i mean mm-hmm. you need the context right you need yeah. the good and the bad the joyful and the grief struck we just we need both things you can't have like we can't live in a vacuum right like we don't yeah. you need sort of the thing to be in stark relief against something else because sometimes we miss okay so here classic thought experiment you don't have to answer Mm -hmm. but just putting it out there for all the listeners so if you could put emotions on a spectrum from say one to ten where one is like the most devastating thing you could possibly imagine and ten is like the best moment of your life one to ten and then you can control the range of the spectrum but it has to you know circle around five so it's like will you choose four to six because you'll always be safe Mm-hmm. Will you do two to nine? Will you do all the way? Will you like pull the sliders all the way out and do one to ten? And about it's a fun, fun dot exercise. I think too, it might also depend on how many snacks I've had and how much <laughs> sleep I've had. All right, you know what? We could keep going. We could probably keep going for like a week. And then we will end up in spoiler territory. So we're not gonna do that. Pam, thank you so much for joining us. Land of Milk and Honey is out now. If somehow you have not read How Much of These Sales is Gold, 
you should get that one too. But really start with Land and Milk and Honey. Thanks so much. Thanks, Leon. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.